Welcome to the 1515, a 15-minute podcast brought to you by the regulatory legal experts at the Maples Group. Here, you will learn more about the latest developments in the regulatory laws of the Cayman Islands on the 15th day of every month. Hello and welcome to another episode of the 1515 podcast by the Maples Group. I hope everyone is settling back after a long and fruitful summer. My name is Tim Dawson and I'm a partner in the regulatory and financial services team here at the Maples Group's Cayman Islands office. Joining me today is my fellow regulatory partner Adam Huckle and associate in our team Anthony Morganus. In this September instalment we will cover all the latest developments in regulatory laws that have taken place in Cayman since August. Please note that the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice and should be taken as a general update only. If you're listening from your usual podcast app you'll find any resource documents and speaker information in the description and if you've clicked on the media player link sent to you via email you can find this information in the notes section don't forget to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or google Podcasts. let's get started the first thing we're going to talk about today is updates to the beneficial ownership regime donny there was a new bill published recently if i'm not mistaken hey tim that's right the long-awaited beneficial ownership transparency bill was gazetted and published on the 30th of august of this year it hasn't come with Without due warning, there has been quite an extensive amount of consultation with industry stakeholders over the past almost two years, really, as we've kind of seen a few different iterations of the bill and other consultation papers. We didn't know exactly when the bill was going to be published, but yeah, on the 30th of August, we did see that final version approved by cabinet. What we'd like to do today is just run through some of the high level key changes that the bill does propose to make to the beneficial ownership regime in the Cayman Islands. One of the key things is that it consolidates all of the different pieces of legislation that currently amount to the beneficial ownership regime. So as our listeners might be aware, currently the beneficial ownership regime is spread across the Companies Act, the Limited Liabilities Companies Act and the Limited Liability Partnership Act. What the bill does is it effectively consolidates all those legislation, piece of legislation in, into one legislation, which is good news. Now we're going to have one act and one accompanying regulation to deal with the regime in its entirety. There are some more substantive changes to how the regime is going to work and who it will apply to, which we'll deal with in a sec. One of the probably more attention-grabbing changes to the regime is probably what our listeners may have heard is that the bill does contain some provisions dealing with making our beneficial ownership regime a public regime. The bill doesn't yet actually enact a public regime for the beneficial ownership regime. It does provide provisions which allow cabinet to make further regulations which need to be approved by cabinet in the future. But there is provision in the bill for the regime to be made public. So for now, once the bill is passed, which is expected to happen at some point in the fourth quarter of this year, the beneficial ownership register will not be public, but there is provision for it to be made so in the future. So stepping through some of the key changes that are proposed to be made to the beneficial ownership regime. Firstly, we're bringing in new entity types. The bill has a definition of a legal person. So now going forward, or once the bill is passed, all legal persons will be subject to the beneficial ownership regime. Relevantly, what we're, what the bill proposes to do is bring into scope limited partnerships, exempted limited partnerships, and foundation companies. Currently, those types of entities are not within scope of the beneficial ownership regime, but there will be once the bill is passed. In terms of 
how the changes are going to be made. We don't yet know exactly when these types of entities are going to be brought into scope. What we do know is that the bill will, once it's passed, will be introduced in a phased approach. So exactly when these new entities will be brought within scope, we don't know exactly, but we're hoping for a little bit more clarity on that in the fourth quarter of this year. The next change, which is another big one, is that, as some of our listeners might be aware, under the beneficial ownership regime, there are quite long list of exemptions that entities can point to and rely on to effectively mean that those types of entities wouldn't need to establish and maintain a beneficial ownership register. The bill effectively removes quite a number of those exemptions and introduces the concept of what's called an alternative route to compliance. The only exemption which is being maintained in effectively the same uh, way as it is now is that what's called our listed exemption. So effectively, if you, if you have a legal person, so any of those old and new entity types now within scope, that is itself listed or is a subsidiary of a listed person, then that type of entity is going to be effectively exempt from the beneficial ownership regime. You would need to provide certain information, for example, the name of the listed entity and the jurisdiction and the name of the exchange, which the entity is listed on, but that's effectively it. Almost all of the other exemptions are being removed or altered in a material way. Relevantly, mutual funds and private funds are able to take advantage of what's called the alternative route to compliance. So effectively, what that means is that all mutual funds and private funds will have to provide the contact details of either a licensed funds administrator or another Cayman Islands licensee, the details of a contact person within that licensee as their required particulars. Effectively, the way it's intended to work is that the registrar could contact that licensee here in the Cayman Islands to request beneficial ownership information with respect to that mutual fund or private fund if they choose to do so. The response time is, at least in the bill, seems to be relatively short. There's a 24-hour period or at any other period that the registrar may request. So seems like a fairly tight period of time for provision of information. Although it seems on its face that mutual funds are able to take advantage of a somewhat of an exemption. The way it would effectively work is that mutual funds and private funds will need to be able to present that information if requested on a relatively short time frame. There is provision in the bill uh, for mutual funds and private funds to effectively opt in to having a full and maintained beneficial ownership register on a regular basis. So rather than only providing the information on request and providing the details of a licensed administrator or licensee here in the Cayman Islands, they would just establish a, a beneficial ownership register. It's going to depend on the mutual fund. It's going to depend on the client, but that might be an easier pathway for, for certain clients. There's also new required particulars that relate to both beneficial owners and reportable legal entities for individual beneficial owners. We have all the existing required particulars that we have had in the past, so we need to identify the person's name and address, the date of birth, have details about the person's passport and so forth. But we're adding a few key things. The first one is nationality. And the second one is the nature in which that individual owns or exercises control. So we need to be able to identify the person's nationality. There might be some difficulties there where we have people with dual nationality and the nature of the individual's control. So are they a shareholder? Do they exercise some kind of indirect control of the legal entity? We need to be able to point to that reason. And a similar additions for reportable legal entities. So just by way of a reminder, reportable legal entity is a Cayman Islands legal person within the structure who otherwise would be a beneficial owner. We also need to identify that entity's nature of ownership and control. We're getting a new definition of beneficial owner. It looks kind of similar to what we have now, but I think it's a little bit clearer. 
and is less wordy than the definition that we have currently under the existing regime. We still have similar concepts of an individual beneficial owner being someone with a 25% interest in the relevant legal person, whether direct or indirect. That definition also contains similar language about the person or the individual exercising ultimate effective control or having control up through some other means. There's carve-outs for persons being identified as beneficial owner simply by virtue of being a professional advisor or professional manager. We have similar carve-outs now under the definition of beneficial owner, and thankfully those have been carried forward into the new bill. There are new requirements being placed on corporate service providers. Relevantly, a corporate service provider is now going to be required to review and confirm the details of the required particulars that are provided with respect to either the individual or the reportable legal entity. A corporate service provider is going to need to take reasonable measures to verify the identity of the person using reliable sources. The bill contains a definition of what is a reliable source. I won't go into it now, but it's probably just relevant to flag that this isn't something that under the current regime, corporate service providers have been required to do. So this is a new requirement being placed on corporate service providers here. I think they are the key changes coming through from the bill. Hopefully, we'll have some more updates in the fourth quarter. We're also expecting to see a new version of the accompanying regulations come through in, in the fourth quarter, as well as, as some guidance from government. Stay tuned for more information on beneficial ownership. Thanks, Donny. That's very helpful, very comprehensive. To frame that, and in fact, the next piece, which I'm going to talk about, it's just worth noting that our beneficial ownership register regime was born of a commitment made to the UK to have registers of beneficial ownership and, and, and the rules which were originally developed five or six years ago were born out of that commitment to the UK. These changes are in large part predicated by changes to guidance issued by the Financial Action Task Force or FATF. That's the body which basically sets the standards for AML rules which are implemented in every country. And in fact, there have been changes to the AML guidance notes to reflect changes to, to FATF guidance with respect to use of electronic onboarding and, and digital ID solutions. And I think the one thing to just to sort of bear in mind is that the beneficial ownership regime is looking at the kind of beneficial owners of a given entity as a whole, whereas when you have a regulator such as an investment fund, it's required to apply KYC rules to each and every one of its investors. And so turning to that, SEMA has now issued revised guidance notes. They were, they were published on the 30th of August. They largely reflect consultation changes which were published at the end of last year, but also consolidate changes made for purposes, uh, well, that they consolidate guidance notes amendments to do with virtual assets, service providers, and, and securitization. Apart from EKYC and digital KYC, which I'll talk about a bit more in a second, there are a couple of small changes of general application, which I think are actually quite significant. The first is that when discussing verification of legal entities, there's a specific provision in that section stating that a regulated entity can use publicly available sources, including company registers, for purposes of verification. Secondly, when talking about receipt of documents, there's wording which reads that due diligence documents, including government-issued identification received in electronic form, is acceptable providers broadly that, that you check that's well, that you have policies and procedures in place to ensure that those documents are, are reliable and are not, not fake. With regard to the latter, I mean, previously the emphasis was more on checking that what you got wasn't an original copy generated in an electronic form. But now what it's saying is if you've got a copy by email, then you can rely on it. So both of these issues are actually taking the onus off the need for certified copies, which is a very welcome 
change, considering I think Cayman Islands was a bit of an outlier globally with respect to the requirement for certification of copy documents. That's not to say you won't need them in some instances, but it's very much more predicated uh, on application of a risk-based approach. So turning to the the kind of EKYC more broadly is the distinction between having some sort of full-blown digital onboarding or ongoing monitoring system that is a program of itself, such as some sort of app or portal, which is going to do something funky like doing cross-checks against public registries or checking whether documents which have been submitted are actually reliable. If you're going to go down that route, then you're going to have to do a fairly robust assessment of that system to check not only that it's reliable from a kind of KYC perspective, but also that it's going to work, that there are no cybersecurity risks or data privacy risks, and that records are available on demand. So those sort of systems are likely to require fair degree of investment and policies and procedures and risk assessments dealing with implementation of those systems. On the other hand, then we've also got what is slightly more accessible technologies such as emails and even video conferencing. The guidance notes now talk to video conferencing as a means of onboarding. It's still considered a non-face-to-face mechanism. And the reason that's relevant is that if you're non-face-to-face, you're expected to carry out verification to check that who you're talking to is who they say they are. But that said, when it comes to natural persons, whether customers in their own right, investors in their own right, or parties to or involve in a non-natural person investor, such as directors or officers or detectors or what have you, then the guidance notes speak to basically presentation of ID documentation on screen and then a follow-up kind of submission of those same documents. This is much more simplified. For the actual entities themselves, which are kind of being onboarded by video conferencing, it's a bit more complicated for want of a better word but but the idea is still whatever is presented needs to be corroborated and if you can do it against publicly available information like government registries then that should really mitigate against the need to go and get a certified copy though if you have a constitutional document let's say a trust deed which which is unlikely to be published you're probably still going to need to have that submitted in certified form in any event this is good news given the kind of added expense and difficulty with respect to obtaining certification You're always going to have to need to have policies and procedures setting out how you onboard, how you risk assess, and whether it's appropriate to rely completely on EKYC or whether you need to go and get something more old-fashioned like hard copies. Nevertheless, the door is very much open to the kind of more modern forms of onboarding. One reminder, the SEMA Statement of Corporate Governance and Internal Controls, they come into effect on 14th of October. You've got to ensure that regulated mutual funds and private funds comply with these. So if you're not already, then you should be actually reviewing these rules and statements of corporate governance and internal controls to make sure that you've got measures in place before the coming deadline. And, uh, you know, either we within the regulatory team or your usual kind of Maples contact will be very happy to help you with those. That's almost enough from me. One last update of interest is with respect to sanctions. And I'm going to hand you over to Adam, who's going to talk about some recent UK case law. Thanks, Tim. There are two interesting and potentially interrelated sanctions updates that we will run through very briefly today. The first is the English High Court's recent decision to dismiss the attempt by Eugene Schwidler, a longtime ally of Roman Abramovich, to quash his designation as a designated person under the UK sanctions regime pertaining to Russia, and as a result, amongst other things, to lift the current asset freeze on his assets as a matter of UK and thus Cayman Island sanctions law. That first instance judgment came out 
on the 18th of August of this year. Secondly, alongside that, not something that's specifically mentioned on the slides, are the ongoing proceedings in the General Court of the Court of Justice of the European Union, in which Roman Abramovich himself has similarly challenged his designation as a listed person under the EU sanctions regime pertaining to Russia. First, turning to the recent English decision. Schwidler's claim and the English judgment are primarily relevant to Cayman Islands investment funds that may have had or may have exposure to Abramovich or his related investment entities, for example, as a result of those entities' investments in those funds. Funds will have frozen those shares, limited partnership interests, if there was reasonable cause for suspicion that the investor of record is indirectly or directly owned or controlled by Abramovich. And were the English judgment to have any effect on Abramovich's sanctions position in the UK, it would have a similar effect on his position under Cayman Island sanctions law. And the short point is that although Cayman investment funds should continue to monitor any appeal by Schwidler, the English judgment, which dismissed Schwidler's claim in its entirety, does not change the sanctions position of either Schwidler himself or Abramovich in the Cayman Islands and should not change the position taken by those investment funds with respect to the frozen shares or LP interests. If anything, it should reconfirm the necessity of freezing assets where there is reasonable cause to suspect that they are owned, held, controlled directly or indirectly by Abramovich. So in the English proceedings, Schwidler had challenged his designation on public law and human rights grounds. He had previously exhausted the internal ministerial review process and had subsequently issued this claim for the English High Court to review the legality of his designation by the UK Secretary of State under the appeal process that's set down in the UK's Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act. And that statutory appeal process applies the same principles applicable on an application for judicial review under English common law. And Schwidler had argued essentially, first that his designation and the, the reasons for that designation were disproportionate to the significant hardship that the sanctions had on him and his family, which were uncontested. And second, that the decision to designate him was based on race and or ethnicity and was thus discriminatory. Now, on the first ground, the judge held that the relevant UK Secretary of State did have the relevant grounds to designate him under the applicable statute and that the decision to do so was not disproportionate. And on the second ground, the discriminatory one, the judge found that Schwidler's claim was, was hopeless. Even if Schwidler had been successful in his claim, the outcome would have been unlikely to have automatically affected Abramovich's sanctions position in the UK and Cayman. First, a successful claim would have quashed the decision to designate Schwidler only, and Abramovich would have remained on the UK consolidated list, albeit that such a decision by English court may have prompted Abramovich to take similar legal action. Second, there are key differences between the stated reasons underlying both Schwidler's and Abramovich's designations. Schwidler's is his association with Abramovich, as well as his former non-exec directorship of Evraz PLC, a Russian petrochemical company. Whereas Abramovich's is his historic and continued relationship with Vladimir Putin himself. So even if Schwidler had been able to prove, as he had argued in these proceedings, that he didn't have any continued relationship with Putin and could not influence Russian government policy in any way, that would not have meant the same was true of Abramovich. Indeed, the English judgment is very clear on the reasons why UK and therefore Cayman sanctions apply to Abramovich. 
the judge confirmed that there is evidence that Abramovich has had and continues to have a close relationship with Putin and that the UK Secretary of State is, in inverted commas, plainly entitled to conclude that there is a continuing relationship of trust and confidence between Putin and Abramovich, which is enough to get him on the UK consolidated list. So in conclusion, although Cayman Islands Investment Fund should continue the monitor, to monitor the situation, including any appeal that may be filed by Schwidler, the English judgment should not affect their current treatment of frozen investments. Now, with respect to Abramovich's ongoing EU proceedings, the available press reports that are out there indicate that Abramovich is challenging his, he says improper, EU designation on grounds that it didn't meet the necessary criteria under the applicable EU sanctions legislation. You know, he's arguing effectively that it was his celebrity status that led to him being sanctioned, um, that he didn't benefit from any relationship with Putin, and that being only a passive investor in Evraz PLC, he did not provide substantial revenue to the Russian government. Now, any decision with respect to the application of EU sanctions on Abramovich, again, will not have any direct legal effect on the position with respect to the asset freeze currently imposed on Abramovich's assets in the Cayman Islands. Any judgment in the EU proceedings would not have a direct effect on the UK Cayman Island sanctions position. And that's because Cayman Islands investment funds have frozen Abramovich-related shares and other interest in their funds as a result of their Cayman Islands sanctions law obligations, which derive from sanctions imposed by the UK government, which is a wholly different regime to that imposed by the EU. So even if Abramovich succeeds in overturning EU sanctions against him, he would still need to apply similarly to appeal the separate sanctions against him imposed by the UK government. Any success that Abramovich may have in the EU courts, if any, may well encourage him to take similar action with respect to those UK sanctions, particularly if any finding is made that the EU designation breached the European Convention on Human Rights. However, some separate action would be needed by Abramovich after the decision by the EU courts, and the failed attempt by Eugene Schwidler to overturn his UK designation, which I mentioned earlier, means that any such application would, in my view, face an uphill battle. So in conclusion, and as with the English judgment, although Cayman Islands Investment Fund should continue to monitor the situation, the EU proceedings should not themselves affect their treatment of any frozen investments. Thanks, Adam. That's really helpful. Subscribers, listeners who don't know, this is actually directly relevant to rather a large number of investment funds in which Abramovich um, had invested. So thanks very much to you both. It brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to our subscribers and listeners. Until next time. Thank you.